Professor Che, welcome to Always Real Talk. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, look, it's, it's happy to have you. I know that you've had uh, a long day. I know you've you know, done your duties uh, as a council member and representative of Ward 3 on the D.C. City Council. I know you've been, of course, uh, in class uh, as a professor of the George Washington Law School. Um, I want to ask you, you know, you are the only person that I know, and we tried to research this, and we didn't get too far, uh, and it's probably that many, that many legislators or people that have been sworn into office by Supreme Court justice. And I've had the opportunity to witness you being sworn in by Justice Ginsburg. Why, why don't you tell me how that impacted your life, just getting sworn in by a Supreme Court justice? That's, that's awesome. Well, it was awesome. It was a, a singular honor. Um, I knew Justice Ginsburg uh, professionally because we had served on some committees together. And then, you know, she, she was a professor at one point in her life, too. And um, I was extremely honored when uh, I discovered that she had actually read some of my law review articles uh, and in one case, you know, sent me this note um, about one of them. And so uh, when it came time for me to be sworn in, as you know, Kwame, because you were on the council for years, um, at the swearing in ceremony, all uh, people who are elected, they have to go out and round up their own judges. And um, I just wrote her a note and I said, you know, would you consider swearing me in? And she said, of course, Mary. I said, well, OK, fine. Um, but there's actually a, a little story connected with that, too. Um, as you also know, Kwame, because you've been sworn in, the function of the judge is to walk up to the podium and administer the oath. OK, that's it. They administer the oath. Then they go away, and then the uh, official gives a, a little bit of a talk. I was sitting on the end with her. She was my judge, and I was called up to be sworn in. And so we get up, and as you may remember, uh, Justice Ginsburg is kind of slight, and she's, she was a very uh, quiet talker. We get up to go over to the podium, and she said in her very, very soft voice, she said, Mary, do you mind if I say a few words about you? Now, that hasn't been done before, and it wasn't done since. The judge is supposed to just administer the oath. But I said, Justice Ginsburg, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> and so she said these very nice things about me. Um, but I, it was so sweet, and I was, I was uh, you know, over the top delighted that she agreed to, to do it. Um, because she was um, an icon. She... You know, every woman lawyer in the United States, in fact, every woman in the United States owes her a debt of gratitude because if not single handedly, almost single handedly, she changed the law in the United States to achieve equal treatment uh, for women. And um, it's just extraordinary because she had a strategy. She had powerful arguments. She made those arguments, and she um, really changed the law uh, for women. And she did it at a time when women, you know, were really kept out of things. And her major premise, which seems so obvious now, is that every woman, like every man, ought to be able to um, 
have opportunities to achieve their dreams, uh, to go forward and not be pigeonholed because they are women. You know, there's this idea, okay, women were put on a pedestal and they were to be protected, the weaker sex. But that pedestal was actually a cage and it was a stereotype that affected men, too. Um, you know, she wrote the opinion in United States versus Virginia, which was about admitting women to the Virginia Military Institute. And her philosophy is captured nicely there. She said, hallelujah, men and women are physically different. No question about it. Right. But and, and not every woman could uh, go through the rigors of the VMI training. But not every man could either. If there was if there were some women, if there was one woman who wanted to do it and could do it, she should have the opportunity to do it. And she said she said it so elegantly in the opinion. She said, you know, we've been here before. Women can't be police officers because they'll upset, you know, the vibe, you know, of riding around in the car or, or whatever. They can't be firefighters. They can't go to the, um, you know, the national uh, military uh, training. They can't do this and they can't do that. Yes, they can. And they should be given the opportunity. And if some women can follow a certain path, let them follow it. And, you know, I don't want to go on too much, but, you know, talking about strategy was when she was with the ACLU in their women's project, which she essentially created and led her strategy in part was to bring equal protection cases, gender equality cases on behalf of men. Right. So right. that she could really illustrate how this idea, these stereotypes about what men can do and what women can do. And one of the cases was on behalf of a man. There were uh, uh, things in the law that presumed that women were dependent upon men and could get death benefits when the man died. But if the woman died, the man had to uh, show that uh, he was dependent upon her. And, you know, um, my screen went dark there a little bit. I don't know if that was on my end or yours. Um, and that man wanted to uh, raise his own child and get these benefits. But he had to go jump through all these hoops uh, in order to get benefits that were automatically given to the woman because there was this assumption that the woman was uh, dependent on the man, but the man couldn't, couldn't possibly be dependent upon a woman. But she brought those kinds of cases to show in stark relief what these stereotypes were doing for men and for women. And she, you know, today they don't exist. These discriminations against men and women don't exist because of her. Well, clearly, uh, and clearly you mentioned uh, that women, but men owe her also. Uh, the, yes, the, they the, do. The, the country and the world is better because of her country. She liberated us. She liberated Absolutely. us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you saw that from the poor, the, just the love that's, that's being poured out uh, mm -hmm. for her, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. And to be honest with you, no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, it's a it's a level of respect right. uh, because everyone understands that what she fought for, what she did at the time that she did it um, has changed the world for the better. Uh, and so that's you know, we, we see that what let me ask you what has her life and her service on the court itself, how has that impacted you professionally and personally? Well, uh, her life is, is itself an illustration 
that uh, women can pursue their dreams and can follow, you know, their professional interests. When she was um, graduating from law school, I forget how few women were actually in the profession. And she faced all sorts of obstacles. Um, I believe there were four women at Harvard Law School, and I think the dean had lunch with them. I think this is the recounting of the story. And he asked each one of them why they thought they should be there in place of a man. <laughs> they had to justify themselves. Um, and then, uh, you know, to, to move on in the profession, she was uh, denied an opportunity to teach at uh, Columbia and some other schools. And she was given an offer by Rutgers Law School. And she took that. Ultimately, she did wind up teaching at these other schools. But they couldn't see their way past the fact that she, she was a woman. Um, even though she graduated at the at the top of her class and made law review, uh, et cetera. So she she showed the way. She made it possible. We all sort of um, uh, have to um, be in her debt in in the most you know dramatic of ways. Absolutely. I'm, I might not be here, you know, where I am. I don't know. Um, but certainly in the in the legal world, the ground has shifted dramatically. I think right now it might be the case that there are more women in law school than there are men. Uh, and to compare that to the situation when she went to law school, it's, it's a dramatic, it's like night and day. So. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to go into the Constitution it, itself because I know mm -hmm. that you are a constitutional scholar and you get it. And there's a lot of conversation now based on, you know, how to move forward. And one of the things that keeps coming up, and we just had someone in Texas, so I want to put that out right. there while I'm talking to you, right. is what effect does the, does the Supreme Court have when it's only eight individuals on the court to actually do business and to operate? from a constitutional perspective? Well, they can, of course, continue to operate, and, and they have. There have been other instances um, where the court has lost a member, uh, and not necessarily because the member died, though that's one way. Uh, there could be a resignation. Uh, also, there could be a recusal. Sometimes justices may have worked on a matter, maybe when they were in the Solicitor General's office or some, some other thing, and they have to recuse themselves. So you have nine members so that you'd be left with eight. So what is a court to do when it has eight members and it faces the prospect, not necessarily, but it faces the prospect of having a tie vote? Well, when they sit in conference and they see what the votes are likely to be, they could see that they would wind up with a tie vote and they might let it go forward nevertheless. Maybe they won't wind up with a tie vote. Maybe it'll be, you know, uh, five to three. But if it's a tie vote, there are certain options. They could let it go forward, in which case the lower court opinion is still on the books. And what the Supreme Court did by issuing its opinion with a tie vote has no precedential uh, authority. But they could do lots of other things. They could take the case and carry it over uh, to be re-argued when they're at full strength. Or they could go back and think about the case and decide it on narrower grounds and secure enough votes to make it, say, five to three 
or six to two or something of that nature. There are ways around the, the possibility of a tie vote. The court is not rendered you know, immobile uh, during that time. They, they have all of those options. Well, it, and clearly that's, you know, the conversation today is that they're, you know, they're Republicans and the president moving quickly to uh, fill the seat as quickly as they can, saying that they can get it done uh, before the end of the year, possibly before the election, because they have to, because you never know what happens during the election process. If, in fact, we have another Gore versus Bush or Bush versus Gore or whatever the, the technical name was for that particular argument. I was in Florida for the recounting. I was on the Gore campaign. You know, you know what happens? And that's the argument, right? We have to hurry up and fill no, this. No, that's a, a straw man, so to speak, because the court can carry on and has carried on when, it has, when it's missing a member. Um, and it has many ways to uh, proceed. And it can hold a case over. And it can have it re-argued. Uh, when they get back at full strength, that's just one of the options that they have. But that's not what this is about. This is about, I think uh, Joe Biden said it correctly, raw political power. They have the power because they have the presidency, the Republicans have the presidency and they have uh, control of the Senate. And it looks like they have the votes uh, to um, uh, to confirm a, a nominee that uh, uh, President Trump sends over. And they want that they want that power because they will tip uh, even more dramatically the direction of the court uh, in a, a conservative uh, direction. And that's what they want. That That's what they want. And they have the power to get it. And they could say, well, we're doing this because we're worried about tie votes or nonsense, nonsense. They're doing it because they have the raw political power to do it. Right, to, to, to do it. Now, you know, let me ask, because people always ask, should, they, should there be a balance on a Supreme Court from a constitutional and political perspective? I mean, that seems to be the argument all the time. If you're a Republican and you're in power and you have a Senate, you're going to move your nominee, right? You're going to just, that's what you're going to do. Um, if you're a Democrat and you're in power, you have a Democrat Senate, you're going to move your nominee. Um, if you're stuck like the second term, like the first term of Obama, he could have moved all of the nominees and all the judges because he had the House and he had the Senate and he could have moved, did everything he wanted to do. The second term, of course, that was a little bit uh, different based on the Senate and that's why, you know, you had nominees being held up. But what is your professional opinion as it relates to, because it's still political, right? And it's political, uh, political views based on, you know, who's in office and who appoints you. It's inherently political, but I think the best approach is to appoint judges who are in the mainstream, whether it's Democrat or Republican, and not extreme candidates. Um, there have been uh, candidates, uh, nominees, who haven't made it. Um, and it was always the thought that, oh, you know, in more recent times, that a president ought to get the person whomever he chooses. Um, but uh, more recently, the philosophy of the nominee is relevant because there may be fundamental issues about which the public agrees, has a agreement, but you could appoint somebody who's out of the mainstream of majority viewpoints, and that person, I think, should not be nominated. 
the court shouldn't, you should obviously appoint very highly qualified people, but in the mainstream of legal thought. Now, definitionally, you would say, well, what, what is the mainstream? And when does somebody- That was my next question. What is the definition? Right. Who, how do you be, you know, how might you become uh, too extreme? Well, um, there are certain issues that, you know, if the person is honest during a confirmation proceeding and they say, you know, if somebody said, for example, certain things are kind of settled. If somebody said, well, you know, I don't think that the Bill of Rights applies uh, to state governments. I think our jaws would drop. And is that a possible interpretation of the Constitution? Yes, it is. But it's certainly out of the mainstream and conventional understandings. Now, should there be a litmus test? You know, should the litmus test be your view about abortion? Um, should it be your view about states' rights? Should it, you know, uh, if somebody said that they didn't believe that Congress had the power uh, to pass civil rights statutes, I think we would disqualify that person immediately. But, Absolutely. Um, you know, where where is, the, what lane would make you mainstream and not radical, not extreme. There well, would well be, let me ask you a question. I mean, it yeah. seems as though as long as you have the votes, either party, right? So if your Democrats got the votes and the president wants a nominee, they're gonna, and it's given the fact that there's nothing right. there that's, that's outrageous. Um, now, clearly there could be some things that no one's ever gonna agree on some of the uh, philosophies and the interpretation of the Constitution, right? right. There's different interpretations right. and people have different understandings and beliefs. That's, you know, you, that's just gonna happen, right? Um, outside of that, the president said he's gonna send down a woman. Um, clearly that woman will not have the same viewpoints as uh, Justice, Justice Ginsburg. Ginsburg. <laughs> I mean, that, does that excite you that he's going to nominate a woman? Well, you know, excite me. If so, I care more about the views, although I think uh, I do also agree with um, Justice Ginsburg when she was in the Rose Garden uh, being introduced by President Clinton, who nominated her. She said, you know, I await the day when the appointment of a woman is not remarkable. It's just kind of regular. And I think somebody asked her, well, how many women do you think should be on the Supreme Court? She said nine. <laughs> so, Remember that. Um, yeah. Now, um, it's great that, uh, you know, the next nominee would also be a woman. I think that that does matter. But it can't, in my, to, in my mind, overcome a judicial philosophy that will upset many of the uh, core values that I have. So... You don't, you don't get a free ride just because you're a woman. You know, um, Clarence Thomas was nominated to replace Justice Marshall, Thurgood Marshall. Good grief. Um, my screen is going black again. I don't know. And, and, they, and they actually had him, you're good on this side. And okay. they actually gave him, you know, uh, a hard way to go. I mean, it was you. You remember the 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 hearings, and you remember I do indeed. all of the media. And you know, his his vote was quite close. It was quite close. I think it was, I don't know, uh, fifty four to forty six, or something like that. Maybe yep. even closer than that. Um, 
because of his views, because of his views. And uh, the fact that, you know, it was a black court of appeals judge replacing a black Supreme Court justice. And if that's all you were thinking of, wow, you really lost sight of um, uh, who Justice Thurgood Marshall was. And uh, I don't think it was a good appointment uh, to replace uh, Thurgood Marshall either. Right. And, 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 I, and, and so we, we see that that's kind of playing itself out with whoever this nominee uh, that comes down from, mm -hmm. um, from, from the president. Um, I, I want to go to something that's being debated and talked about, uh, mostly by liberals, of course. And that has to do with expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Uh, what is the process for that constitutionally to, to be able well, to do that? Congress has Congress has the power. You know, the the members of the Supreme Court, they have not always numbered nine. Uh, they numbered more at one point, uh, slightly more. They've numbered five. It's been changed over time. Congress has the power uh, uh, to um, create, you know, the uh, with such regulations and exceptions, you know, the uh, of members of, of the uh, operations of the courts. Um, and that includes, you know, the date on which they uh, begin. We, we're used to the first Monday in October. But at one time when uh, Jefferson didn't want an opinion coming out uh, from the Marshall Court early on because he was worried what they might decide, Congress, he took over Congress and the presidency, and they changed the term of the court uh, from a particular date to another date, which had the effect of delaying the court coming back into session for over a year. These kinds of things have happened. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court uh, because he was not satisfied with the, the, the justices who were uh, seemingly striking down a lot of his New Deal legislation. He was trying to get us out of a, a depression. And, you know, so he said, well, look, you know, um, I need I need uh, better results here. So I'm going to ask Congress to add to the number of members of the court. He was rebuffed. It was such a, you know, a raw uh, attempt to make outcomes uh, of a certain kind. And so I don't I don't know how this would be received. I don't think it's a good idea. Now, there are other things. There are other things uh, Congress uh, could do. Also, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. Uh the Supreme Court, you have to have a Supreme Court. The Article 3 says there shall be a Supreme Court. So you have to have a Supreme Court. It can have a different number of members. It can have a different date to begin its operations. But you have to have a Supreme Court. And it has to exercise original or trial-type jurisdiction in a very narrow group of cases. With all other cases within the federal court jurisdiction are cases that the Supreme Court can decide in its appellate jurisdiction. That's what we see mostly all the time. However... The, it's an appellate jurisdiction uh, under such exceptions as Congress uh, and regulations that Congress will make. So it is possible that the Congress could say it's possible that the Supreme Court shall have no appellate jurisdiction to decide any cases. <laughs> We've never done that, but they could play that end of the a game too by limiting the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States, or they could try to, you know, add to the number of justices. I think that 
either of those strategies are not well advised. And um, I hope we don't go down that path. But I do hear the chatter. You hear it. I hear it. That, well, we, 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 we hear it. But once again, it goes back to the Supreme Court itself. It's just, it, you know, some people, as you grow up, you think the Supreme Court is just this different branch of government that, that just, you know, basically looks at the law. There may be some different opinions on it. But all in all, they follow the Constitution. And, you know, they're over there, right? And mm -hmm. now, all of a sudden, it just looks like they're just part of the whole political process of America, right? I, I know. Uh, it's and it's all courts. politics. And, you know, the court, it's been said about the court that the court is the least dangerous branch. And it's the least dangerous branch because it has to win uh, the legitimacy in the eyes of the public. It doesn't have armies to enforce its orders. It doesn't have money like Congress has the power of the purse. What it has is its legitimacy in the eyes of the public. And it would be a terrible thing, a terrible thing. Uh, and Bush versus Gore, that opinion was was a problem in this regard. It looked like they were acting strictly politically to make the presidential election come out a certain way. But it would be a terrible thing if we diminished the Supreme Court of the United States, its legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Because as you said, you know, you grow up and you think, okay, they might decide this one day and that the next day, and we might not agree with this or we might not agree with that. But at least we think that they're doing their job in an apolitical way and certainly not a partisan way. Now, we know that justices are appointed in part because the president, you know, has a view of things and once that ideology expressed in the law and that happens. But we also think that when a member of the court gets on the court, and I'm thinking of Chief Justice Roberts now in particular, he was appointed uh, as a conservative justice, but his behavior on the court, I think, uh, speaks to the legitimacy of the court. He, he was uh, the fifth vote in a recent abortion case to up to strike down rather the uh, abortion statute as unconstitutional even if even if he may have had that view originally he said you know what we had almost this exact same statute a few terms ago and we struck it down and i feel bound by that recent precedent so there any is surprise any surprise a lot of people by right. that by doing that that ex that's exactly right. But it shows his integrity as a justice and not somebody who just wants to come out in a political sense on one side of the fence or the other. And I think that, you know, that that kind of justice is the kind of justice I would like, whether appointed by a Republican president or a Democratic president. So let me ask so, you a question. So are you saying that, you know, because when Chief Justice was nominated, that wasn't the case. People were, you know, rallying uh, against him, feeling yeah. as though he had different views that were different than theirs. Mm -hmm. He got on the court, he's pissed off some folks on the right uh, by, you know, moving more to the to the center. He's impressed people like yourself and others who, because he, he's done things that people would have bet a million dollars that he wouldn't have uh, voted in that way. So is there an opportunity 
for a woman to be nominated by this president that could follow the same path? It's possible. You know, I think, for example, of Justice Kennedy. He was appointed as a conservative justice, and he was he was a frustration to people on the right. Uh, he's the one who uh, authored the opinions, you know, recognizing uh, the rights of um, gays to marry. He uh, also authored other opinions that you would have thought, gee, you know, in the conservative uh, script, uh, he shouldn't have come out that way. But, you know, I think when you sit as a justice of the Supreme Court, you do have to take a view of things that is different from partisan politics. That shouldn't be what your guide is. Your guide should be precedent, reason, justice, fairness, the basic principles of equal protection and due process of law. And while we may disagree, you know, on certain opinions, certain matters, if those are the values that steer you, you could be appointed by a Republican or a Democrat and nevertheless be a justice in whom we have uh, confidence and uh, who we who we respect. Um, I don't know who the nominee will be. I mean, there's some there's speculation about it. And then you don't know how that nominee will will actually serve on the court. But um, the deeper issue in the political space is whether uh, President Trump and the Republican majority in Congress should rush to name somebody when they themselves, they're either hypocrites or liars, frustrated President Obama naming somebody when many months uh, would uh, be between the president's um, nomination and his leaving office. And now there are just like six weeks between um, uh, putting someone on the court, uh, President Trump putting someone on the court and, and an election. And if you really believed, as many of them said they believed, that if it's so close to the election, and it's so much closer than what President Obama faced, um, if you really believe that, and you said that, and you weren't, were you lying, or you're just a hypocrite, then this is a case where the election result should have a major influence on who the next nominee is. I, I would, they'll, they'll, Professor, I, I, I mm -hmm. agree, but you and I know that, you know, placing a justice on the Supreme Court is powerful, and it only comes around, you know, you only get, you don't get that many bites at that apple, and when you're in power, the Republicans have made it very clear, when we're in power, we take full advantage of our power. Um, President Trump has, has nominated 190, filled 198 seats, uh, judges, 198. They were vacant, right? They were vacant, he filled them, right? He has, you know, I don't know how many women he has, that he filled with women, but I know and he has zero black people And part of the reason why he had so many vacancies so, is because the Republicans frustrated the appointment uh, of, uh, of um, President Obama. Well, true, a, and, and I, I, I agree with you that that command. is hypocritical. I agree with you that it is that they, you know, was the reasons for doing it had nothing to do with we need to wait for another president. It had everything to do with that's not who we want. And um, now they're in a situation where 
they're willing to put it all on the line. Many of the senators are willing to put their reputation yeah, on the line. You, they're you, to put you their... identified it again, and as as um, as as is the conversation, we have the power, and we're going to keep it, and we're going to exercise it. And too bad for you. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think if the Democrats were in power and they had the Senate, that they would they would do the same thing? You know, I, I hope that they would hold true uh, to their claim of saying that if it's so close to the election, it, the election should be held first. I would hope that they would be true to that. Um, but you don't know. You don't know. Right. Well, uh, I know it's... And now, that- and now you see, the, the coarseness and the hypocrisy and the lying and the exercise of raw political power, it will have its influence the other way. Um we're, we're dumbing down and um, a race to the bottom is what we have sort of ethically absolutely. and politically. No, a- so, a- absolutely. And, and you have young folks looking at this process and hearing people say one thing and then seeing them do something different. And the message that we're, we're telling them is when you have power, exercise it as, as quickly and as often as you possibly can no matter what your core values are. And I think it's a, right. it's a, it's a bad signal. I, I mean, I, I understand it. I don't agree with it, but I, that's what they yeah. do. Um, I know it's been a long day for you. I know you, you, you know, had a lot going on and you took time to come on the show. We really appreciate it. Always appreciate getting uh, your expert advice on anything that has to do with the Constitution. But more importantly, I know how important uh, and how it affects you, uh, the passing of Justice uh, Ginsburg, and uh, I don't know anyone else that kind of like knows a justice firsthand and kind of brings them and talks to them. I remember in the holding room and all of that stuff, and I just thought that that impacted my life, uh, just to know that this was a, a, a strong woman who really impacted the lives of so many people uh, that, you know, some of the things that are taking place today is because she took that first step. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my daughter's like, wow, damn. She goes, it needs to be another woman. Uh, uh, so it's, it'd be interesting to see how that, and she's 19, and so she's following all of this. And she understands, and she understands the life of Justice Ginsburg at 19 years old, uh-huh. um, which is, is telling, right? So once again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, sure. Please tell everyone uh, hello, especially your family. I know you're, you know, your 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 grand your grandmother now, right? I'm a grandma. That I am. Yeah, I saw the pictures, and and I can see your I can see the big smile you still have on your face when that word comes up. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. I'll be I'll be seeing her soon. Happily. All right. Well, if it's always real talk, you know, it's gonna be real. Okay. Thanks, Kwame.